Reverse don't finish your product, there might be something systemic that is wrong with the system. Mm. So for us, we had a very big play, which is that the future should be right size cosmetics. They should be half the size. They should be portable. They should be cheaper. They should fit into your life. And that was the pitch that we took to investors, saying that there is the potential for a massive disruption in the cosmetic space. It's one of the few multi-billion-dollar industries in, in the U.S. It's actually a, a sixty-billion-dollar-a-year industry, just makeup, oh. uh, that hasn't been touched by technology. Welcome to the Two X Ecommerce Podcast Show, where we interview founders of fast-growing seven- and eight-figure e-commerce businesses and e-commerce experts. They'll tell their stories, share how they 2X'd their businesses, and inspire you to take action in your own online retail business today. And now, here he is, the man in the mix, Kunle Campbell. This episode is brought to you by Remarkety. Remarkety is an email marketing platform specifically built for e-commerce businesses. With Remarkety, emails are automatically triggered by shopper behavior and purchase history. With a few simple clicks, Remarkety allows you to recover abandoned carts, win back inactive customers, make product recommendations, deliver newsletters, and a whole lot more. In other words, emails you will send through Remarkety will be highly targeted with glaring improvements on your open rates, click rates, and most importantly, conversions. You're also able to track revenue generated from every single email sent by Remarkety. Try Remarkety absolutely free for 30 days, no credit cards, and no contracts. To sweeten the deal, 2x e-commerce listeners can get Remarkety for 30% off an entire year using the coupon code PODCAST30. That is coupon code podcast three zero visit remarkety.com to learn more remarkety is email marketing for e-commerce simplified i'm super excited to welcome today's guest julie frederickson she's the ceo and co-founder of store away cosmetics a venture-backed direct-to-consumer cosmetics company that retail their own right-sized makeups that are half the size and half the price. She's going to explain everything further on. I especially brought Julie in to discuss how she went about raising capital for a product-based e-commerce business. Um, before I introduce her, here's a list of some heavyweight investors. Julie and Chelsea, her partner, um, have managed to convince, convince to invest in, in their idea and their business, actually grow their business. Gary Vaynerchuk, um, Brian Sugar, Dave Morin, Jason Kalikanis, Fabrice Grinder, Don Hodgkinson, you just, you know, name it. Um, as I alluded to earlier, you know, I'm super excited to have you, Julie, on 2X e-commerce because we're about to learn the nuts and bolts of you know, raising angel and VC capital for, for groundbreaking products and e-commerce businesses. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Fantastic, fantastic. Could you take a minute or you know maybe two to to kind of um you know explain um to to give us you know to 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 introduce yourself first, please. Sure. Well, I'm Julie, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Stowaway Cosmetics. Uh, my entire background actually is in the e-commerce space. Straight out of university, I started a company called Couture which really focused on independent publishers and the affiliate world. So, okay. uh, and, and this was a decade ago when uh, affiliates were not quite so mature and we brokered deals with some of the original luxury houses for independent publishers and were acquired by Sugar Inc., uh, which actually is one of the reasons that Brian Sugar is an investor in my current venture, Stowaway. And I spent several years in-house with uh, the Ann Taylor team in an e-commerce manager position. So e-commerce is really my bread and butter. And I love talking about the space and how more companies can get into it as I think it's one of the biggest opportunities of our time. Oh, I see. I see. Now that makes a lot of sense because I could see on both companies in, on your profile. How long did you were you with Ann Taylor for? So I believe it was... Uh, just a little under three years. Okay. I was brought in um, by their president, Christine Beauchamp, to help develop more of a social competency around their e-commerce, uh, especially in this day and age. 
There are so many different ways of driving traffic, and some of the traffic that can convert the best is obviously consumers that are deeply engaged, which it comes across from social. So that was my role there. Okay, okay. It's really interesting. Um, from your angel list listing, um, yourself and Chelsea. Chelsea comes from a slightly different background. Your co-founder, she seems to be more into you know embedded into the industry, um, the the beauty and cosmetics industry. I could see a profile with SD Lauder Clinic. Could you kind of um, you know, tell us a bit about Chelsea um, and um, how you guys met? Because we're slightly different background. That's true. We we like to joke that we're the yin to each other's yang. We Absolutely. have. Absolutely no skill overlap. So Chelsea and I have actually been friends for quite a while. Two university friends of mine uh, introduced me to Chelsea probably years ago. At at this point, we've known each other so long, it would be hard to even pinpoint when we first met. And uh, Chelsea's career very much is deep in the beauty industry. She actually started her career behind the makeup counter at Clinique in Indiana and, and worked her way up through the industry so really deep knowledge in in product Mm. and just deep knowledge of what products are good and also how the industry operates she spent all of her cosmetics career at one of the biggies which is estee lauder Mm. a a lot of people don't realize how heavily consolidated the cosmetics industry is Mm. 70 percent of the industry is in 10 conglomerates so if you're buying a makeup product chances are it's from l'oreal estee lauder b&g or one of the other heavy hitters. So it, it's uh, the space has a lot of similarities to say eyewear, in which you know, one or two dominant players own everything. I see, I see, I see, and I like the fact that she, she she's actually interacted and knows what your customers, you know, are, are looking for from cosmetics, and you, you 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 kind of you know know how to build out you know an e-commerce business. Um, did you so why did you head the fundraising? Um, um, you know, activities for for, 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 for for the company, for Storeway Cosmetics? Well, we had very big ambitions. Now, not every e-commerce business needs to be venture-backed. Obviously, mm. there are a host of amazing tools that are very low cost. Things like drop shipping have made it possible so that anyone can get into the e-commerce space. But our ambitions weren't simply to build a direct-to-consumer e-commerce business in the cosmetic space, but we had a very specific thesis, which is that cosmetics are incorrectly sized. Women's lives have changed since the 1950s. We, we don't stay at home any longer. You know, we work, women make up over half of the workforce in America. Mm-hmm. And this idea that cosmetics are being designed for a bygone era really bothered us. And mm-hmm. actually, we commissioned a study that showed that uh, a 4,000 women that showed that 75% of women don't finish their cosmetics, not just before they expire, but at all. So if, you know, if three quarters of your customer base don't finish your product, mm-hmm. there might be something systemic that is wrong with the system. Mm. So for us, we had a very big play, which is that the future should be right-sized cosmetics. They should be half the size. They should be portable. They should be cheaper. They should fit into your life. And that was the pitch that we took to investors, saying that there is the potential for a massive disruption in the cosmetic space. It's one of the few multi-billion dollar industries. In in the U.S., it's actually a a $60 billion a year industry, just makeup. Uh, that hasn't been touched by technology, that hasn't been disrupted. So for us, venture backing made sense because we had a big vision, because we wanted to grow so rapidly and wanted to take on an industry in a way that just hadn't been tackled before. Okay, that that sounds really interesting. And the two things I've sort of picked up on are your big ambitions and um, the waste. You know, so so there is there is a problem of, of wastage in the industry now. Just looping back to your big ambitions, when you were um, speaking with with initial investors, I think there were about seven or eight of them initially. Um, how did you demonstrate um, the the big ambition you, you had? Um, how what what was it besides the problem, or in addition to the problem? Um, how how big is this ambition? Did did they want to kind of look at um, the financial? The financials of the ambition in terms of how big you want to go, you want to go to a billion dollar business. How big is this ambition monetarily or normally? (laughs) 
the, the ambition is very large. Okay. So just to give you an idea of how large, uh, L'Oreal did $2 billion in acquisitions last year. $2 billion okay. in acquisitions. And the market caps of these companies are absolutely huge, right? So mm -hmm. I think uh, a lot of men in particular maybe don't appreciate just how much women spend on cosmetics. It, it's a very, very large industry uh, with quite a bit of money being spent. And mm -hmm. so when you're talking to venture investors, you, you need to show a couple of things. Uh, one is how large could the opportunity be? And we, we made the case that it is quite large, probably larger than they realized. Uh, we, we like mm -hmm. to make a joke that there were at the time three venture-backed shaving startups, uh, but no venture-backed cosmetics companies. And sure. shaving is actually a quarter of the size of makeup, not just beauty, but makeup. So that if, if they really were in for the big dollars, uh, we, we had something interesting to show them. But then you, you also have to show, can you execute to the vision? And I think that's where Chelsea and I as a team really mm -hmm. spoke to investors mm -hmm. because I had the deep e-commerce background you know, starting from the real nitty gritty of the affiliate space, which is kind of the bowels of e-commerce, mm -hmm. if we're being really truthful. Mm -hmm. And she really knew the product perspective. So we thought if we could make a really terrific product and a really well-constructed e-commerce experience, we, we had a shot. Okay. 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 Um, okay. Again, I've picked up on another thing. You, you talked about execution, well, execution to the vision. Um, Given your background in affiliate marketing, um, how could you sort of describe how you both, with Charles Tune in, in the cosmetics, how did you guys sort of identify this vision? A lot of us have ideas and um, seeing them through is an issue. You know, uh, there's so many things broken in the industry which are just whinge about. But, but how, you know, there the are many ideas, probably many broken things in the industry you'd come across and Charles had come across. How did you know this was the big thing and how did you sort of follow that through to, to, to action? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. People like to have these Genesis stories about just knowing right away. But I think we slowly worked our way into the problem. And it started over breakfast, actually. I was complaining mm -hmm. to Chelsea that I was really sick of the fact that I was carrying around a ton of makeup. And as Chelsea was always my go-to expert on makeup, I said, why is it so hard to find makeup that I love in sizes I can carry mm -hmm. and actually finish? And Chelsea, you know, thought long and hard. And she said, you know, that's really odd because as a makeup artist, I think sizes should be smaller because they expire. And as they expire, one they become riddled with bacteria, and two, they don't perform as well. So mm -hmm. actually, none of this makes sense. That's interesting. And everyone I know would prefer smaller sizes in the makeup industry. And it sounds like consumers would prefer something smaller. Why aren't we being provided with this? And so that moment we realized that there was demand but no supply – we started to hit on the idea that maybe there's a systemic reason why. Maybe there's a deeply entrenched industry. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what started us down the garden path, as it were. Maybe that and too much coffee. As to saying that this could be a major opportunity. And you know, it, it did happen quite fast from there. We started really researching why, discovered that as most good problems are, it was a cost of goods issue. Mm -hmm. It actually costs just as much to manufacture a smaller size as it does a larger size, but consumer psychology being what it is, you think you're getting a better value when you buy a larger size. Mm -hmm. But of course, if you don't finish the product, you're not getting a better value at all. Mm -hmm. Couple that with the fact that it's a terrible lifestyle fit. Women are lugging around huge bags of makeup with them all the time. The average woman actually owns 40 items of makeup and has five items on her at any given time. It just started to seem really silly that an entrenched set of problems was only being left to rot because these companies are very large, they're publicly traded, and they have no incentive to cut into their profit margins. Mm -hmm. And we thought, aha, the solve for this is e-commerce. Mm -hmm. If we sold direct, we wouldn't have to worry about the markups of Sephora or Nordstrom. We would simply need to be able to be profitable on our own, which is how we landed on the concept of half of the size and half of the price. Because if we manufactured these and then wholesaled them, they would have to cost more and mm. consumers would feel like they were getting a poor deal. Mm. 
And that's the reason that nobody sells these sizes. But I don't need to wholesale my product. We can now reach massive audiences online. We have this thesis that the future of retail is the end of wholesale. And I think e-commerce is the driving force behind that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It makes makes a lot of sense. So, so um, yeah, it was, we, yeah, it was, it was the, the, um, the, the major players in the cosmetics industry trying to, you know, play with our, well, with our psychology. We, we like big and um, they were manufacturing to how far the economies of scale would stretch, you know, per, per volume, you know, for, for, for each cosmetic pack. Okay, so from a validation standpoint, um, how did you kind of validate with, with other ladies, other women in your situation who, who got to complain? Did you run surveys? Did you ask, how, how did you sort of find out that this was a big enough problem to, to solve? Sure. So um, prior to funding, uh, we, we actually had two stages of validation, prior to funding and actually post-funding. Um, prior to funding, what we ended up doing was doing a, a, just a giant survey monkey. Uh, let all of our friends know, asking them uh, multiple questions on, do you carry makeup with you? How much do you carry with you? Do you ever finish your makeup? What are your biggest makeup pain points? And then we asked everyone to submit a photo of their makeup bag. And actually, that visual was probably the most powerful thing because mm. we had all of these women holding up overfilled, massive makeup bags just with grungy, nasty, half-finished products yeah. that they'd had for years. And, and with, a, with a mess, with, with, with all sorts of collars in, on the interior of their makeup bags. Yeah, and it, was, and it was just so unpleasant mm. that... Uh, that when we we took these photos to to go fundraise and said this is the problem it's a really visceral problem and of course there's always the challenge when explaining to men a women's problem because they don't necessarily emotionally resonate with it right you you can emotionally resonate with how frustrating it is to get a cab in San Francisco and mm -hmm. understand Uber and you can understand how frustrating it is to maybe get groceries and understand postmates but if you are a man of a certain age as most venture capitalists are really emotionally understanding this problem was a little tricky. Mm. But the second they started asking the women around them, the feedback was immediate and, and really quite instantaneous. Yes, this is such a problem. Why mm. do you think traveling with me is such a pain in the butt? It's mm. because I'm always carrying these products. Mm. And the more that feedback came back, the, the evidence became really, really quite overwhelming. And actually, um, one of our investors, um, so Gary Vaynerchuk works uh, with a brilliant, brilliant associate uh, named Phil Toronto. Okay. And he told me a story about how his mother used to drive him to school as a child. And she would apply makeup at every stop sign on the drive. Uh -huh. And so that intuitive understanding, it was one of the reasons we knew that, that Gary and his team just had to be part of our, of our round mm. because he had seen that problem firsthand. Mm, mm, mm. Interesting, really, really interesting. So, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Now, I, I'm going to just step a little back to um, the big ambitions you know, um, topic again, and um, what I really want to tap into is mindset, right? Um, uh, you know, your mindset is unique, right? And um, where are you based? Sorry, um, are you based in New York? Or yes, we are based in New York. You guys are based in New York, and um, most of has most of your career prior to Stonaway been in New York. Entirely in New York, yes. Okay. Right, because. My question really is, you have a Silicon Valley mindset, um, from, which is entirely different to or slightly different from an e-commerce you know, mindset. You know, some people want to build out e-commerce websites, you know, build it out to a few million pounds and, or dollars and, and that's it. How, how did you sort of develop the startup mindset? Did, were you listening? Did you follow the tech you know, um, press like TechCrunch and VentureBeat in the past or... How did it sort of develop for, for you to want to disrupt an industry um, from a tech standpoint and a direct-to-consumer standpoint? Because there are certain philosophies like, you know, the lean, you know, startup methodology, which you have employed, you know, by, by you know, um, validation. Um, 
you know that's that's quite unique to 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 to, to, to people with you know a disrupt tech disruptive mindset. So, so how how is it nurtured? You know, and mm. I'm just curious to, to find out because. Well, so I think that good startups are always lean, always think tactically. And I think that one of the reasons I love e-commerce is that mm. it's really one on good execution. Mm. And all of the little details add up to a great whole. And I personally find that very satisfying, that really having the bottom of your funnel super tight, all of the optimization work that you can do, mm-hmm. it gives you a great deal of control on a day-to-day perspective. Mm-hmm. But from the broader perspective, what I, I I think brought me to this idea that it should be a venture business was quite simply that any industry that is incredibly consolidated and has practices that haven't evolved in, in decades deserves to be pushed mm-hmm. and, and frankly needs to be pushed. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I have multiple theories on this, I think one of the reasons that in an industry like cosmetics hasn't been pushed by the Silicon Valley mindset is that perhaps men don't see the problems in the same way that women see them and that there aren't as many female tech CEOs with the kind of technical backgrounds that Mm -hmm. I have Mm -hmm. um, that want to push forward these problems or are being funded to push forward these problems. I don't Mm -hmm. know if it is want or lack of access. I, I think... Frankly, women in technology is a whole other kettle of fish that would require a, a different <laughs> podcast. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I, I think because of that, the, the realization that one, it was a, a tactical business that we felt we could win on the day to day, but that on a, a, a an operational theater perspective, it was a huge opportunity that deserved to be tackled. And uh, I probably got that mindset, frankly, from childhood. Um, wow. I was a as much as I've, I've lived in New York my entire career, um, I was born in Silicon Valley. Uh, my oh. father uh, worked for Ingram Micro, which is one of the largest distributors um, of computer software. And okay. I grew up in a, a kind of homebrew situation as a child. Oh. And I think being exposed to the idea that someone could come up with an idea in a garage and it could be a really small tactical business and turn into something major just stayed with me for life. Yeah. And that combination of experiences of growing up with it and right. then also New Yorkers are very scrappy, very lean, has, has given us a very unique advantage. Mm-hmm. What memorable, growing up, what, what memorable startups, garage startups do you, do you recall? What's been the most memorable growing up in, in Silicon Valley? Well, so I didn't grow up all the way in Silicon Valley. I was, I was definitely born there and we spent time there. Um, but Ingram is actually based in Southern California. Okay. Um, although it's an excellent example of how um, big Silicon Valley mindsets can grow anywhere. I think Silicon Valley is increasingly a state of mind, mm-hmm. not necessarily a place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Yeah, sorry. Sorry to call you short. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, no, and and I think for me, uh, being able to see from childhood on that failure was okay, that big ideas could be interesting, that maybe you would succeed. And and we did get to see a lot of successes. My my, my father was certainly involved in in a host of very interesting types of businesses. But then also we went bankrupt and went one. And going bankrupt Mm -hmm. actually was probably one of the most formative experiences of my life because it showed me that you can take big bets and fail. And it's actually not that big of a deal. You will survive and rebuild. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was a personal bankruptcy, you know, not mm-hmm. not a company bankruptcy, um, because all of the risk had been had been put into this idea of change and newness and disruption. Mm-hmm. And I think I will forever hold that mentality, mm-hmm. but never want to experience a bankruptcy again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it happened right before I went to college, actually. So oh, <laughs> try that one timing, on the yeah. size. But it's it's given me the I, I think the it, the fortitude and tenacity to try to pursue something very very large while okay. knowing that large battles are won exactly. on day to day execution. Exactly, you, you've been through the trenches and you, you know there's 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 light at the end of the tunnel. Okay, right, that that makes a lot of sense. I was just trying to scratch beneath the surface because I very rarely, um, well, will speak to people. Um, well, no, I, well, let me rephrase my statement. You know, given the way you've spoken and the approach and how you've sort of built Sunway Cosmetics Optil now, 
you know, um, you have to, it's down to mindset. You know, your mindset actually will, you know, it's a source of um, all this fuel. So, so that makes sense now. It makes a lot of sense. I've got some context here to, to go with. Okay, now let's let's start with Stonway 1.0. What did version 1.0 look like? Did you get, did you, did you actually have a 1.0 or did you um, just sell the idea to, to investors and, and then you started to build a prototype? So we had a prototype. We actually spent a year building out what I would call Stowaway 1.0 before we went for fundraising. So working on the formulations and the chemistry, working on the packaging, and some of it was terrible. Our, our, our early packaging really needed quite a bit of refinement. Mm. But we didn't want to fundraise without something in hand. The idea that we could put together terrific formulations that women would love and beautiful packaging that would fit into their lives. And we treated it a little bit like a hardware startup where we said, we've built the prototype. It's wonderful. Why don't you test it out? Although sometimes uh, finding people for them to test it out could be a bit of a challenge. And from there we said, look, now we need to put it into production. This is great stuff. People love it. Uh, uh, the validation has come from the testing process. And now it, it needs to go into the world. It needs to be produced. Mm. And I, I think especially in a product business, it's almost impossible, even with a great team, and I, I think Chelsea and I are a very qualified team, to raise funds without a working prototype. I think those are simply table stakes now for fundraising. So, so how did you get your initial customers? Were they customers or did you give out samples? So they were very much customers. Uh, I, uh, I'm, we, we actually don't do a lot of sampling. Um, part of it is, is related to this little quirk of the industry in which um, sampling was actually the only way you could get smaller sizes. And then mm. you were paying up you know, tr tremendous markups uh, for, for products. And we didn't want to encourage women to continue engaging in that behavior because we want them to understand that, well, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Those free samples aren't free. And the you, anytime you take a free sample and then purchase up into a larger product, you're purchasing a product at an enormously marked up price that you'll never finish. Mm. Um, but for us, um, we engaged in all of the, all of the little tactical things um, that you would expect from the start. Uh, we ran a two-week pre-launch campaign in which we said, if you share... Uh, here are all the prizes you can win for getting lots of people to join our email list. And that formed the base of, of our initial customers. And then from there, it was simply a matter of how do we fill top of funnel? How do we tell our story? How do we make sure that people find us credible? Because here was this brand new makeup company and people aren't used to seeing new makeup companies because they tend to be very established. They you know, and tend to be owned by large conglomerates. Mm -hmm. Um, so we actually uh, did something quite unusual for a young startup, which was hire a public relations firm. Okay, right. And we when Top and we dollar? did it. Yeah. Well, and uh, well, and they certainly. Well, the thing is, is they sound expensive, but the mm. ROI is really tremendous. Mm. Because one, they build your credibility in major publications, and when you care a lot about SEO and inbound links, mm -hmm. those publications are a lot better than if you're just scrapping about trying to find smaller sites to link to you. Mm -hmm. So w when you think of it from that perspective, it actually ends up being an incredible bargain, mm -hmm. uh, but I definitely uh, shook my head at the price tag initially. <laughs> hey, okay, and, and all this was self-funded going forward? So the uh, prototyping and the year of development was self-funded. Mm -hmm. The launch of the company was not. Okay. We raised um, from a, a, a team of different types of investors, um, both institutional. We actually do have venture um, funds in us. Um, Metamorphic is the largest fund, uh, which is a New York-based fund that specializes okay. in both e-commerce and ad tech. Um, they're our largest investor. Okay. But then uh, a lot of heavy hitters like Jason Calacanis, like Gary Vaynerchuk, we're going to talk about the investors shortly. Um, yeah. I just wanted to to, to 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 find out a bit more about um, you know the, the PR um, that you, you you took. Was it towards the business um, community, business PR, or was it towards um, your consumers? Was it consumer PR or, or business PR? Was it business PR for for raising capital, or was it consumer PR for getting customers for acquiring customers? Well, we already had funding by the time we launched. So yeah. we, we raised our round um, and closed it in August of 2014 okay. and launched in February of 2015. Okay. So uh, we uh, didn't use PR to raise funds. 
uh, only because uh, we didn't have anything to sell. We needed the funds to produce the product. That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons I used the uh, the hardware metaphor. Gotcha. Um, but we did split the PR. And one of the reasons we split the PR, um, we, did, we did both business and consumer, uh, was that it is important to tell the larger story of Stowaway, that it is a huge opportunity, that it's very interesting because it's something that – uh, as we scale, and we do plan to raise more funds, mm-hmm. more venture capitalists will need to understand. So we did tell that story. So mm-hmm. we had quite a bit of press um, in publications like Fortune and Bloomberg and Fast Company telling the business story. And one of the reasons we thought it was valuable is that women read business publications too, right? They're mm-hmm. they're half of the audience. And smart women like buying smart products. And Stowaway is a smart product. We're designed to make women's lives easier. And we wanted those women, those Fortune Forbes and Bloomberg reading women, to Mm -hmm. realize that someone had created a product for them. Mm -hmm. And to understand the economics of it. Because the economics of it are very respectful to the consumer. And the economics of the current cosmetics climate are not friendly to the consumer. And I firmly believe that if you treat your customer as smart, you will get smart customers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The, the Warby Parker way. I absolutely agree with you. And, um, you know, just getting those high-caliber, you know, customers initially um, would, would, you know, sort of trickle down, you know, um, to, 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 to ordinary consumers and, you know, further down the, the chain. Okay. Um, so I, I, I heard your, um, I listened to your interview with um, Jason Kalikanis on um, This Week in Startups, which was an investor you alluded to earlier. And he said um, the reason he invested in, in, in you guys was you were executing at a high level. Um, and, you know, that speaks volume. And, and so, so how does that high level execution prior to, you know, to pitching to him, or how did it look like um, from, from that standpoint? I mean, a lot of people would be interested to, to find out, you know, how to execute at a high level for a product direct to, to consumer, you know, um, business. Sure. Well, and I think what Jason meant when he said we were executing at a high level prior to funding, and I certainly hope he continues to think we execute at a high level, although our our metrics certainly indicate that we do, was that when we came to pitch, we had a product that was very well thought through. The formulations were done. Uh, We had very specific rationales for the formulations, for the product, for the packaging, and then also for the business plan, the go-to-market strategy Mm -hmm. um, that was very, very detailed, right? You know, pages and pages of information on how we planned to market, why we planned to build on certain technologies, what we planned to do, who the team was, Mm -hmm. and what we saw the first month, three months, six months, and, you know, frankly, five, ten years down the road, and knowing that it wasn't it's not field of dreams it's not if you build it they will come mm. that we had a plan to get people to the baseball game that mm. you are not kevin costner and you need to make sure that people are showing up and are interested and we had both the product side of it which is how you get repeat customers but also the prospecting side of it very mm. well under control from mm. the start mm-hmm. so uh, everything you're, you're touching on on here okay so um, the, the beauty and cosmetics industry is 60 billion in the US. Um, how much have you raised in, in capital thus far? So we have raised publicly 1.5 million. So okay. certainly not an insignificant sum, mm-hmm. although probably chump change compared to how much a conglomerate would use on a new product launch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've certainly anecdotally heard some very entertaining numbers on just how much it costs to. Uh, innovate and build a new product, let alone launch and actually get customers on that product. So we've certainly done quite a bit on very little, which is also the obligation of a startup, of a seed-funded startup, to show that you can get very, very far and, and do you know do impossible things on very little capital because it's your job to show that the scaling existence is possible. Uh, the, the agility is there, you know, um, absolutely. Okay, and um, okay. So, so how did you? find and meet um, investors. Sure. So it, it has certainly helped to have been embedded in both the New York startup community and the San Francisco startup community. Um, I had had a previous exit in my first startup. So one of the first people that I went to, obviously, was Brian Sugar to say that this is something that I'm exploring. I think it could be very interesting. And I think it's actually very, very challenging 
to Ray's venture without being at least somewhat inside the system. Mm-hmm. And anyone can get inside the system. I firmly believe that. So you have to find the one person who can introduce you to the next person who can introduce you to the person you know, down the road that'll be interested in cutting the check. Mm. And I know a lot of VCs and angels will say that if you cannot find a warm introduction to them, no matter how good your idea is, they're not going to take it because they need you to show that you can move mountains. Mm. And it's a litmus test in some ways to show that you can find a way to people. And we did our very best to find ways into the people that we thought would be appropriate for us. And I I think that was really the secret there is showing that tenacity and showing that we could find our way in and that we had something interesting to show. And then from there, fundraisers do take on a life of their own. People talk. The venture community is extremely small. uh, And chatter builds. And if you are doing a good job of convincing people around your idea, Mm -hmm. investors will bring on other investors and your round will take shape very quickly. Uh, the, The old joke is that Fundraising is the hardest thing in the world until it's the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> it's all a chain, really. Um, you know, hinged on a really great idea. Okay, all right. So um, you had six investors at the start in, in 2014, um, in, in June of 2014 from your angel list um, um, profile. Page. Yeah, that may not be fully accurate. Uh, okay. Our cap table is a little larger than that. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, initially, okay. Right. Um, right. Okay. Let's talk. Let's quickly talk about um, your pitch deck. Your initial pitch deck. Did you have a pitch deck, and how was it structured? Yes, we very much did have a pitch deck, partially because we had to explain that the problem existed at all. Often, uh, you people will go in, and uh, the problem will be at least somewhat familiar. Mm-hmm. We didn't pitch anyone who was familiar with the problem because no one we pitched experienced the problem. Mm-hmm. So for us, it was. Build the case around the problem, build why the problem exists, and then show how large the opportunity is if we win the problem. Okay. And that kind of three-point narrative arc, I think, is also just how we as humans process. Mm. Problem, solution, size of problem. Mm. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Okay. Right. Um, so what does your team look like at the moment? So we're quite lean and very proud of being lean, actually. I I think a lot of people have a tendency to uh, take on large teams once they've raised funding. But one point five million is, uh, you know, chump change comparatively. Um, Of course, it's an enormous sum of money, but very small when you're trying to do the things that we are. Um, So it's six people, myself, Chelsea, um, our CTO, who actually was my co-founder on my first two startups. Um, So very, very close knit team in that sense. Um, A GM, a customer service person. Um, and then someone to help with design, and that's that's it. We uh, we do everything. I mean, you would be surprised at the small menial things I do. I still code the emails. I still place all of the ads. Oh. I actually make most of the ads myself. Wow. Uh, um, because we also believe that you do not deserve more funding if you cannot show initial traction on the resources you have. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so, so what about traction one year? You've been about a year and a half now. In, um, what, what does traction look like um, for, for the business now and, um, as we approach um, 2016? So actually, the business is only 10 months old 10 um, months, okay. from, a, from a launch okay. perspective. Um, obviously, um, from the point of raising funds, we had to put the products into production and, and do quite a bit of work. Um, but, you know, traction has really looked like consistent month over month revenue growth. That's that's the metric that I track most keenly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second most intriguing metric and the one that I think shows that our business is winning is actually repeat purchasers. Mm-hmm. And I, I think so many businesses uh, neglect that as a metric. And the reason I think it's particularly crucial for us is that if – Three quarters of consumer cosmetics purchasers do not finish the product. What incentive do they have to buy another product? Okay. Well, they have none, right? So the cosmetics industry is in this death spiral of having to introduce new products, new colors, new innovations. And then mm-hmm. suddenly you have aqua eyeliners being marketed at great expense by Sevilla Vergara. And uh, I just don't think that's a very efficient business. Mm-hmm. I think that you should sell a product people like. They come back and purchase it again and again and again. They're hooked. They're, it's a habit. You make it a habit and, you know, you have the cost of a business for life. 
Right. And so for us, that means that even though we're we're currently profitable um, on an average order value uh, right now, so I can spend at a great CAC uh, on an average order value right now and feel really good about it, knowing that I have this repeat customer base, which just allows me to feel more confident in my spend. Um, so I could be more aggressive if I wanted to, but the fact that I can spend on an average order value basis in a reasonable manner, it gives us a tremendous amount of latitude. Mm-hmm. And for us, the fact that so, and I'm going to be you know open kimono about this, our mature customers, so people that have been with us long enough to have finished the products, mm-hmm. which are kind of customers from you know month one to say you know around month six, I guess, which would be September. Mm-hmm. Um, those repeat order numbers, it's thirty percent on the first set of months and and then it you know trails down you know 25% 23% 20% depending on the maturity of the customer mm-hmm. and that's an astounding fact right that mm-hmm. means that 30% of the people that bought a product that have now had a chance to finish the product were like you know what this is terrific mm-hmm. and the average order value on the first order is not substantively different than the average order value on the second order. And that's something that we're very proud about. That means that they have purchased something, came back, and repurchased virtually everything. There's a difference of $10, and the difference of $10 comes down to the fact that it's easier to finish eye products and complexion products than color products. Color products take a little longer. And so I think as we mature, we'll actually start seeing that third average order value will end up being higher than second average order value. So you need to on the comment on Okay. It makes a lot of sense. So I, your, 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 your brand name search must be going up steadily, given the fact that you know, 30% of customers actually are repeat customers. Exactly. And not only that, the conversion rate. So, and you know what benchmark you know, conversion rates look like, right? Mm-hmm. You're like, you're, people are happy at 1%, they're thrilled at 1.5%. Our organic search converts at 3%. 3%. Okay, that's really, really good. Okay, um, going back to what about other sorts of growth levers? Um, are you tapping into word of mouth referral marketing? Um, how, how are you, you know, to, to me, there are three ways of, you know, growing an e-commerce or, you know, any business in, in general, you know, getting, acquiring more customers, increasing repeat customers, which a lot of it, you know, hinges on the product itself, which which is a brilliant product in, in, your, in your case. And then the third component is really, you know, getting them to, to spread the word, you know, about you. Um, so, so how are you working out on, um, you know, on bringing, on getting customer advocates um, from your existing customer base? Sure. Well, so I, I like to say that you can't shine a turd. The product has to be good. So mm-hmm. that, that kind of is table stakes right there. But I, I think it will not surprise you that email is our best performing channel. Mm-hmm. And we take a lot of care in building the email database. Uh, we do quite a bit of co-marketing with brands that we feel are aligned with our values and mm-hmm. aligned with our customer base. Uh, and from there, it, it, it's also being really respectful of the existing customer base. We have excellent customer service. Any problem that comes up, we will solve it, and we will solve it for you in an hour. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we do that through using, you know, tools like Groove, which is an excellent help desk. I highly recommend it as a product. Um, mm-hmm. We use Olark for live chat. Okay. And uh, un- unlike a lot of e-commerce companies that may outsource their customer care, we have a person in-house that runs everything. Mm-hmm. And we then feed that data into our product development cycle, into how we market. Because, uh, and that's uh, something I think people maybe don't appreciate about the current cosmetics business is that, Bobby Brown or Clinique or NARS don't know their customers. They have Mm. no CRM. Mm. Sephora has the customer data and CRM. Mm. The department stores do. And that's the danger of being a wholesaler. Mm. Whereas we have completely transparent data around who our customer is. Mm. And so we use that as the incredible strategic advantage it is by making sure that we really do pay attention to these people. And that has allowed us to, and I think, you know, so much of e-commerce analytics is reading shadows on the wall. Mm -hmm. But Direct load traffic is very high for us, actually, the highest I've ever seen. It started at 50% and still is kind of holding very steady around 30. Um, and obviously, it'll go down as we grow. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's that high at all means that women are sharing. Exactly. And what's a little unique about our customer base is I thought more women would share on social media. But because we serve not necessarily that you know Gen Z and tweens, we serve mature millennials and professional women. They tend to share a little more um, 
peer-to-peer. So mm. messaging apps drive traffic. Mm. Um, the way that they talk to each other, they're actually having conversations that are a little less, oh, I can see it on Twitter or on Instagram and more person-to-person. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's kind of an interesting thing, right? We have this notion that social media can be a real panacea for driving traffic. Mm-hmm. And actually, social media traffic is only 5% of our traffic. Mm-hmm. And we're comfortable with that simply because our customer shares in a different way. It doesn't mean she's not incredibly social. Our direct response traffic, our direct load traffic clearly shows she's very social. Mm-hmm. She's just social in a slightly different context. And it's important to be comfortable with that. So, so do you see, sorry for quite a short, do, do you see, do, do you see um, messaging? Um, being the no, new social, you, you know, with 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 Facebook acquiring WhatsApp and, and you know, for 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 strong, for, for billions basically, and um, you know their focus on Messenger, the, the Messenger app. Do, do, do you see the future of um, you know social and e-commerce and a lot of you know uh, the word of mouth referral, you know, components of e-commerce being messaging because that's you know intrinsically the way at the base level that's the way we we actually communicate on um, bar. You know, um, voice. Uh, it's more or less voice and text. And I think we have drawn we have drawn back as a culture on how we share. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, if perhaps uh, this could be my own bias showing, you know, Dave Morin is a, an investor of ours, but I, I think path actually had it right. I, I think that more private intimate sharing mm. actually is how certain generations feel good about social. Mm. And I, I think messaging is perhaps the, the heir to what path got started. And this idea of the way we communicate with our friends becomes more intimate, becomes more circumstantial. So, and I don't know how marketers are going to take advantage of that, to be quite honest. I I, I Mm -hmm. think that there's a great deal of permission that will need to be involved there Mm -hmm. and inviting people in. So respectful brands will do quite well with this. Brands that are a little more spray and pray probably won't. Mm -hmm. So we certainly have done as much as we can to show that we're a respectful brand and Mm -hmm. really care about our customers. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know that I have the answer here. I think the trend certainly shows that messaging is going to be very interesting. Mm -hmm. And we already see quite a bit of that. And what it looks like long term, I think, is anyone's guess. Yeah, I think maybe the only issue now um, with, with, with apps and mobile is attribution. Um, we're, we're really having problems, you know, from um, from an analytics standpoint. And uh, the, you know, um, tech companies should really solve um, that, that problem. I think they could pass, um, you know, some referral data or something for, for anything that, mm. you know, gets out of their ecosystem at some point. Okay. Are you planning to make a move into the UK or Europe anytime soon? Oh, we certainly hope so. I get probably five to ten emails every single day with complaints about how we do not do international shipping. Uh, And uh, it's really quite a shame uh, that it's so logistically challenging. Mm -hmm. You know, we're we're a very small team, so I think it's the sort of thing that may have to come after a Series A in which we have more than, say, six warm bodies around the table. Um, because there there are issues around customs, there are issues around distribution, and there are certainly issues also uh, around just sort of the general regula- regulatory environment. So one thing that's we're very proud of is we are EU compliant. Okay. The, the U.S. is notoriously lax around ingredients and ingredient safety, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of terrifying. If you're a, a U.S. listener, you should actually be a little scared. Um I'm a capitalist and libertarian, so I don't necessarily think it's the government's job to regulate this, but the fact that companies don't disclose their ingredients should Mm. petrify all of us. So what does it Um, look like in the U.S. um, in terms of um, the restrictions on... (laughs) Virtually none. Virtually none. 11 ingredients are banned in the U.S. 1,300 are banned in the European Union. Yeah. So there's definitely there's something there's something fundamentally wrong with that. So we very proudly hew to EU compliance standards. So that means we're paraben free, we're phthalate free, cruelty free. We're actually most of our products are vegan. The the, the one or two products that are not vegan um, are not vegan because they have beeswax in them. Uh, uh, we're gluten free. So we really care a great deal about the ingredients uh, because. You, you put it on your body, right? And mm-hmm. uh, you care about what you put in your body. Uh, you certainly wouldn't drink arsenic, so why would you put an endocrine disruptor exactly. on your skin? They, 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 you, your, your skin actually absorbs it into, in, you know, um, so yeah, absorbs the chemicals, so it's yes, um, or, you know, the, the ingredients around. Okay, okay. Okay, let's talk about your exits. I'm just, we're about to wrap up now. Um, what's your philosophy on, on an exit? Um, just 
from from a startup you know standpoint um, how what, what do you think a perfect exit um, should look like from your perspective <laughs> Well, and you should always be thinking about liquidity, right? Like that, the the idea of having that moment um, should always be at the back of any entrepreneur's mind. And I think uh, we, we have multiple opportunities along our journey, right? Mm-hmm. Because like I mentioned early in this call, L'Oreal did $2 billion in acquisitions, right? Like that's like a tech company level of acquisitions, right? Like I don't think Yahoo did that many acquisitions last year. Uh, so you know, when we look at that, there's definitely the possibility of a major acquisition um, from, from a L'Oreal, from, from a, right, from a L'Oreal or an okay. Estee Lauder, who um, frankly can't develop their direct distribution channels very effectively on their own because mm-hmm. it would upset their retail partners. If you look mm-hmm. at, say, a Revlon, 25% of their revenue comes from Walmart. So mm-hmm. they can't really upset their retail distribution partners. It's just not in their best interest. Mm-hmm. But if you acquire someone with great direct distribution then you, you've kind of solved your problem. So I, I think that's one potential strategy. But quite frankly, I'm, I'm thinking bigger than that. Uh, I'm <laughs> not that I necessarily uh, am uh, at the stage in which you call me a qualified public CEO, but I do think that we could IPO. I think that the market is large enough and the opportunity is large enough. Um, because we look at um, you know what used to be mid and large cap companies mm-hmm. uh, that were publicly traded are now private, right? We've, we've we've had this idea of keeping companies private a lot longer, mm-hmm. and I think that there could be an excellent opportunity for a very disruptive, very different cosmetics company to say, you know what, we're taking on the biggies. We can be public. We can be that accountable because, frankly, if you looked at our books versus the books of a L'Oreal or an Estee Lauder, we're that much more efficient. And Wall Street analysts love efficient companies, love seeing the fact that we can acquire and maintain a customer so much more cost efficiently than our publicly traded brethren. And I don't just think that this is, you know, a a couple hundred million dollar opportunity. I think this is a billion. This could be a multi-billion dollar opportunity when you look at it. And Right sizing as the thesis mm-hmm. is about f- helping customers in their current lives. And nobody else is focused on the customer experience in the way that we are. And that's not to say that things couldn't change, that there couldn't be upstarts and there couldn't be n- uh, new competitors. Frankly, I don't worry at all about the incumbents. I worry about upstarts. Mm-hmm. But uh, that exit opportunity of a genuine IPO, no, granted, that is you know 10 years down the road, I think very much exists. Yeah. But I'm happy that there are plenty of paths for liquidity along the way. Uh, I personally want to see you guys IPO. Um, just <laughs> no, given the ethos and um, the whole D to C and you know disruption mindset, you know it would be it'd be I'll be delighted to, to, to see you guys IPO and you know um, you know have a life of your own as a multi billion dollar company you know um, doing 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 things differently from from a tech standpoint perspective and just from an efficient you know, perspective. Um. <laughs> oh, and believe me, I've already got my my public CFO and my public COO all picked out in my heads. Good stuff, good stuff, good stuff. <laughs> they don't know it yet, but I'm going to start <laughs> them real early. Oh, okay, good stuff. Okay, so this is a lightning round. Um, I just ask evergreen questions. So these questions have been asked to almost everyone who's been on the show. Um, you could just, you know, um, answer in, in uh, with a sentence or two. Um, how do you hire people? Whew. Um, gut feeling, honestly. Uh, I really care about mental agility. Mm. And even if someone doesn't necessarily have the exact qualifications that mm. might be necessary, if I think that you can solve a problem without complaint, then you're in. Yeah, yeah, it's a mindset. Okay, what are your three indispensable tools for managing Stunaway Cosmetics? My three indispensable tools. Yeah. Uh, MailChimp, mm-hmm. Unbounce, nice. and Google Analytics. <laughs> Okay, good stuff. Oh, we, we're aware of all that. We'll link to it to them in the show notes. Okay, what's been your best mistake to date? By that I mean a setback that's given you the biggest feedback. So, you know, we made a lot of engineering mistakes that came from a good place. Probably in April and May, was our, uh, we had a, a couple of dips that mm. we were not our finest moments. Mm. But being very honest about how the mistakes came about and how we fixed them and how quickly we fixed them mm-hmm. ended up giving us a lot more visibility into how we wanted to build 
going forward. And uh, we've been able to maintain those lessons kind of month over month very consistently since then. Okay. So sometimes messing up your tech actually ends up being the best way to have better tech long term. Exactly. Good feedback. <laughs> okay. What, um, one thing, by the way, just to try to digress in a bit. Um, I was on your website yesterday and um, I was going for the checkout. It's so smooth in, in terms of um, it's questionnaire based, which is quite interesting from, from that perspective. And, you know, in about um, 15 seconds, I had um, some five dollars in my in my basketball. I was going to buy anything, but uh, it was quite quite clever. Okay, one what what one piece of um, advice can you give listeners looking to raise capital for their direct to consumer e commerce ventures? Mm. Well, thank you for saying that about uh, our checkout flow. We took a ton of time and energy uh, to make it as smooth as possible, especially yeah. when you have people need to make a lot of choices. Yeah. Uh, there's the old uh, trope that you can't, the more choices people make, the worse your conversion is, which yeah. is not necessarily true. Mm. You can definitely engineer a fast conversion process with a lot of questions. You just Breaking need to do... Breaking it to, to... Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to actually write a blog post around, um, you know, that transition, you know, process on, on your um, on your checkout. It's, it's worth the case study from, you know, it's just that speed and transition is, you know, it's quite efficient. And the fact that you give people options, you know, um, three, four options max um, yeah. per, per cool. page and then they, they move on. And it, it, it's actually, um, so this isn't true necessarily when they get to the cart, but 95% of people who start the kit builder process mm -hmm. finish the kit builder process. Ah, that's your secret sauce. <laughs> so, and that's not to say that they all get through, you know, actually paying for it, but we get them through, which is amazing, right? You want yes. someone to have that extra 10 seconds with your brand. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're very proud of it. So feel free to share that stat. <laughs> oh, oh, well, I'll take some, I'll take a video screenshot. Okay, so, so what one, what, what, what? What one piece of advice can you give to listeners looking to raise capital for the direct-to-consumer e-commerce ventures? Or venture, sorry. Be as prepared as humanly possible. Do not have a single data point that you cannot have a justification or a validation for. You need to know a mm. hundred times more than the person that you're talking to. So if you're going in and you're talking to someone who really knows the e-commerce space, mm. which a lot of the better VCs do, mm. you need to make sure that you have done every possible bit of homework, know exactly how much it costs to acquire a customer, know exactly what channels they're coming through, know exactly what products they like and why, how your merchandising strategy has approached these things. Just being better prepared than your opponent and let's be real, venture capitalists are your opponent until they're your actual backers, in which case they're your best friends. <laughs> True. The money is, is in it. Okay. Uh, very, very, very good point. <clears throat> that thoroughness is important. Okay. Um, if you could choose a single book or resource um, that's made the highest impact on how you, you rebuild in a business today and growth, um, what would it be? Ooh. Uh, well, in, gosh... Picking one would be almost impossible. I would say to prepare you to raise capital, Brad Feld's Venture Deals. Okay. Read it once, read it twice. Uh, about the fifth time, you'll know enough to actually be a functional human being when raising capital. <laughs> uh, but actually, um, this is going to sound a little strange, but I would yeah. say read a lot of science fiction. Hmm. Anything that helps you see the world from a different angle enables you to solve problems better. And hmm. uh, science fiction may not be the way that everyone sees the world from a different angle, but your ability to see a problem that no one else sees and then optimize for a solution comes from your own creativity. So read whatever it is that helps you be the most creative in your problem solving. Interesting, very, very interesting point. Um, my last guest actually um, has authored five science fiction books and he's only 19. But, well, <laughs> I'll have to read them. You have to listen to that one. Um, okay, finally, could you let our audience know how to find reach out to you if they wanted to connect? So I am very accessible on social media and via email, and, and I respond to everyone. Actually, it's one of my greatest joys. I love talking to entrepreneurs uh, and future entrepreneurs. So you can reach me at julie at stowawaycosmetics.com. Mm -hmm. You can find me on Twitter at almostmedia. Gosh, there are, are probably you can email hi at Stowaway Cosmetics and find yeah. me too. Uh, I always respond. I, I take very seriously uh, the responsibility of responding to people because can, so so many people helped me. 
I will help you. <laughs> I can testify to, to Julie's responsiveness via email. Very, very fantastic. Well, very nice um, email etiquette. And, um, you're, you know, you, you just um, come back to me within, you know, uh, within the art. So it's fantastic. Okay. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you, Julie. Um, I've learned a ton. I've taken notes here. I'm going to listen to this episode again. Um, I hardly do. Um, yeah, it's it's been fantastic having you on the Two X E Commerce podcast. Thank you for, you know, um, yeah, sacrificing your time and you know sharing your your knowledge. And you know, I wish you guys the best. You guys have to do this. Um, you guys have to IPO. Um, I would be glad to. <laughs> I'll just be delighted for you guys. Well, keep keep an eye on us. We got a long journey, but we are going to work hard and fight every day to get there. Brilliant, brilliant. So thank you guys for sticking to the very end of today's show. I hope you found Julie's story about Stonway Cosmetics and raising capital inspiring. To download the show notes and read the full transcripts, head over to 2xecommerce.com. About a week from um, when this is published to iTunes. Um, and for updates on tips to help grow your store, be sure to sign up to, um, for email alerts and 2xecommerce.com. Until the next show, do have a fantastic one, everybody. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of 2X E-Commerce. To help you get more actionable insights and e-commerce growth hacks that will help you 2X your online retail business, hop over to 2xecommerce.com. It's a blog dedicated to e-commerce and multi-channel marketing run by the show's host, Kunle Campbell. 2xecommerce.com is packed full of articles and guides to help increase traffic to your store, increase repeat purchases, and average order value. Thanks for listening. Visit 2xecommerce.com.